millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It might seem embarrassing to show a pair of thongs here in this incongruous setting of the doll. Deputy. But the reason I'm doing it, how do you think a rape victim or a woman feels at the incongruous setting of her underwear being shown in a court? Tisha to respond. And when is this doll going to take serious action on the issue of sexual violence? Tisha to respond. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, and that was Solidarity TD Ruth Coppinger speaking in the doll this week, where she produced a thong from her sleeve, like a magician, to highlight the absurdity of women's clothing being used by the defence in rape trials. It was followed up on Wednesday by a protest at Cork Courthouse, where hundreds of women symbolically laid underwear on the court steps after comments passed at a rape trial, highlighting the fact that a female teenager complainant was wearing a lace thong. Protesters marched from Cork City Centre to the Anglesey Courthouse asking for judicial reform over sexual assault cases as well as better training for barristers to avoid potential victim blaming. There were also protests in Dublin, Waterford, Limerick and other places. These were sparked by comments which I spoke about on this podcast last week that were passed in a central criminal court rape trial where the fact that a 17-year-old complainant was wearing a thong was cited by a defence counsel to the jury. The defendant in that case, it's important to say, was found not guilty and these protests have nothing to do with the outcome of that trial. Rather, the use of a woman's underwear or, in fact, any item of clothing in any courtroom. One protester carried a placard complete with attached underwear, warning, my knickers is not my consent. And I think that says it all. And also, I went to see Asking for It in the Abbey this week and it had a lot of resonances for all the things we're talking about. This, If you can get a chance to get along, I'd really recommend it. That's Asking for It by Louise O'Neill. Coming up on today's episode, I'll be talking to Jennifer Willis, who some of you might know from her family band, the Willis Clan, who became famous on America's Got Talent. Jennifer is in town for the Festival of Politics, which begins today, Thursday, 15th of November. And she came in to talk to me about her incredible story of being a survivor of sexual abuse by her father. Later, our co-producer Jennifer Ryan will hear about the Dublin Feminist Film Festival, which begins next Tuesday, 20th of November. But before we get started on that, there are a few other things I'd like to talk about. One is the story of Belfast woman Sarah Ewart, who a couple of weeks ago won High Court permission to challenge Northern Ireland's strict abortion laws. She was granted leave to seek a judicial review and there were claims that the near-blanket ban on abortion in that jurisdiction breaches her human rights. Many of you listening probably probably know that unlike other parts of the UK, terminations are only legal within Northern Ireland to protect the woman's life or if there's a risk to serious damage to her well-being. As early as the day of the count in the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment, there were chants and placards declaring the North is next. And I think it's really important that we support our sisters in Northern Ireland in their fight to rid themselves of those draconian abortion laws. 
We know how difficult that fight is, but we also know, which is great, that it can be won. The issue of the North's abortion laws was tackled at the Belfast International Arts Festival recently, where Irish Times columnist and author of the repeal anthology Una Mullally took part in a panel discussion about the eighth referendum campaign, her book and the role of art in activism. It was a really interesting conversation, particularly in light of what is coming up for the women of Northern Ireland in the fight for bodily autonomy. And I think what was said will encourage them not to lose heart when it feels like the battle can't be won or when people aren't hearing you or when there's a rough day on the canvas. And I wanted to bring you a short clip from something Una said at the event, which sums up that feeling really well. That's what local politicians always say, votes come in ones. And what are those ones but people and but you and everyone outside in this city and us and the uses and all of us. And that's what gets this shit across because you can talk about legislation and stormant and everything else, but it is actually people power that gets all of this stuff through and which will get it through here. And don't doubt for a fucking second that it won't. If you invest your time and heart in it, any kind of change is possible. Also just wanted to mention a really, really brilliant article in Vanity Fair by Monica Lewinsky, who's a woman I have admired over the years uh, for a long time. And she's talking about victim status and she's also talking about why she chose to participate in a docuseries called The Clinton Affair. Because over the years, she's kept very quiet, really, for most of the time about uh, what was, you know, for her such a traumatic time in life. And when you think of Me Too and all the ways we would view that um, whole scandal, the prison we would view it through now versus then. It's really interesting. And in the Vanity Fair piece, she talks about why she's taking part in the docuseries, especially as she has really refused so many interview requests over the years. And in the piece, she says that in 2004, while promoting his autobiography, My Life, Bill Clinton gave an extensive interview to Dan Rather and Rather asked Clinton why he had conducted an inappropriate relationship with me and she says in brackets, discussions of this topic seldom acknowledge that I was not the first person with whom he stepped outside his marriage, which is a very good point. Anyway, Bill Clinton's reason for embarking on an inappropriate relationship with Monica Lewinsky was because I could. And that is a direct quote. So Monica says, why did I choose to participate in this docuseries? One main reason, because I could. Throughout history, women have been traduced and silenced. Now it's our time to tell our own stories in our own words, Muriel Roy Kaiser famously wrote, What would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. And I think uh, Monica Lewinsky, it's a really good piece to read if you can. And also just to, to have a think about the way we viewed that when it happened versus maybe the way we look at it now, because I've been doing that a lot after listening to the Slow Burn podcast. And it's a very interesting exercise. Finally, I just want to do a huge shout out to all the men in our lives, our brothers, our sons, our husbands, our partners, all the men who add so much to our lives in terms of love and care and compassion and 
just help and support because we all have them. And sometimes it might feel on this podcast like we do a lot of moaning about men, but obviously we love them all and most men are great. It's International Men's Day on Monday. So we're doing a shout out in the Irish Times if you have a look on the website where we ask men, what are the downsides of being a man today? Because we talk a lot about the downsides of being a woman and they are well aired. But I think there's also challenges for men. And if you've any men in your lives, direct them to this questionnaire. We're going to publish a selection of the answers on Monday, which is International Men's Day. So happy International Men's Day to any of our male listeners. Now, ahead of her appearance at the Festival of Politics this evening, Thursday 15th of November, Jennifer Willis from the Willis clan, who performed on America's Got Talent, came into the studio to talk to the women's podcast about the dark secrets behind their happy family facade. Jennifer, thank you very much for coming in to talk to me. Thanks for having me. Maybe you'll just start by telling us about your very extraordinary family in many ways in terms of the music and in terms Mm -hmm. of that dynamic and uh, how you kind of came to prominence. Yes, so um, I've come from a large family. There's, I have uh, 11 siblings, 12 of us all together. And um, we actually have Irish roots. My mom's side of the family comes from Mayo. And so um, we, at a very young age, we kind of reconnected with our Irish roots. And I got started in traditional Irish step dancing. And then I started playing the button accordion and things like that. And um, this in, is growing up in Kentucky. Um, no, actually, we. I was born in Chicago, and the, the oldest six were born in Chicago, and that's kind of where we started in the, the Irish music. And then we moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and um, we've lived there for the last 18 or 19 years. And once we moved to Nashville, I mean, Nashville is a huge music town, and so our, our music style started to progress from there. We kind of moved from Irish. We started, started doing a lot of the bluegrass and then country, and that, that kind of developed even into pop and alternative and all sorts of stuff. And so, were your mom and dad very musical too, and is that where it came from? Yes, yeah. Both of my parents and their families were, were very musical. And um, on my dad's side of the family, we had some, you know, aunts and uncles that were, you know, professional musicians and stuff. And on my mom's side of the family, it wasn't as much of professional musicians, but people were always singing and playing instruments and stuff. So music was a always a huge part of our life. And they were childhood sweethearts, your mom and dad. They'd met at a very young age. Yeah, they met in high school. So what tell me about um America's Got Talent and how that all came about. Yeah, so that was uh that was a really fun experience for us. We actually were discovered that the talent scouts for America's Got Talent discovered us. Um we had participated in a a little competition that was on NBC's morning show in the US. They were looking for a modern day Von Trapp family. Okay, and you certainly so, sound like that. <laughs> and we I were mean, always, all of you played instruments. <clears throat> Um, yes, all of us play, you know. Uh, was there any chance that anyone could say, you know what, I'm really not into this music thing, I don't want to do it, or you just, it was kind of... That was, uh, the music was definitely a part of our, our, our life, and it was also like part of our education, so even if... You were homeschooled? Oh, uh, we were, yes, yeah. Yeah, so um, we, uh, my dad kind of viewed that as, you know, you're learning an instrument and you're going to learn to sing just alongside with your math and science and history and all that. So... Um, but anyway, we were we were participating in this little contest, um, and we we won that, and so we were able to go on and perform on uh, the NBC's morning show. And then the the talent scouts for America's Got Talent saw us there and asked us to participate in their contest. Okay, and so this was what year then when that happened? I think so. I think it was like two thousand. 12, 2013, I believe, when that happened. And then I think we were on 2014's season of America's Got Talent, I believe. How far did you get go with that? We got to the quarterfinals, and uh, we got to go to the, the live rounds and go to New York and perform on Radio City Music Hall, which was just so amazing. 
So that was a great experience. And <clears throat> what happened then? Because so that was obviously catapulted you into a different mm-hmm. kind of league. It meant that yes. you were in demand as a family, as a, as a group. Yeah. Um, and so what was your life? It was touring. It was... Yeah, so we put out our first album in 2012, but it really wasn't until after America's Got Talent um, that our music really kind of blew up and we started to get a really large fan base. And then we got a, our own reality TV show following America's Got Talent. And um, What was that called? It was just called The Willis Family. Easy. <laughs> yeah, and it was on um, TLC in the U.S. And um, I believe it also aired, I think part of it, at least one or two seasons aired here as well. Um, which was really cool. But um, it was really our third album, which we released um, while we were shooting our our reality show. Um, That was the album that really kind of brought us uh, on board as far as a a successful band. And it was in 2016 when everything changed in terms of, uh, yeah, just your life changing because Mm -hmm. you can can maybe tell us what happened. You were about to go on stage, I think. Yes. So we were on tour in 2016 and um, we were, yeah, literally about to go on stage and our father was arrested at that time. Okay. So maybe just explain from your point of view at that time, mm-hmm. had you any awareness mm-hmm. that an investigation had been going on or what What state, what were you at? So um, there was a little bit of leading up to that. Um, there was, uh, we did catch wind of that there was something going on. There was a bit of an investigation, but as far as the arrest right then, that was something that was... Just that whole situation in general was a very surprising, in some ways, a very much out of the blue um, thing because what my father was arrested for were actions that uh, that he and crimes that he had committed years before. Okay, what crimes were they? So those were crimes of sexual abuse, and uh, he uh, he did sexual abuse me when I was a child and some of my sisters as well. Okay, so you've painted this picture of this very musical family and. Um, Obviously, lots of unhomeschooled and lots of children running around and learning. But there was obviously, because he was arrested, he's been sentenced to 40 years in prison um, for for child rape. And Mm -hmm. that was going on in your house. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me from your own perspective Mm -hmm. what happened to you, what your father did to you? Right. So uh, it started at a a very young age for me. It's hard. I was so young that it's hard for me to know exactly when it did start. Um, But it... uh, really tapered off right before my teen years as, as I was coming up to my teen years. And um, there was, you know, uh, sexual abuse, you know, that, that that was going on. And it really wasn't um, until after he was arrested and you know, just over the last few years that I fully, like, understood exactly what what was done to me. And um, depending on, you know, what the laws are in your area and stuff and the age of the victim at the time of the crime, it, it really uh, is defined in different ways. So um, because of my age uh, at the time, it, it was qualified as child rape, um, which I didn't even – I would not have thought of that my whole life as like I was sexually abused, but I, I wasn't raped. And and then I came to understand that no, according to our laws and the age that I was, that that is what happened to me. I know it's very difficult, and I don't want to make do anything that make you uncomfortable. <laughs> but can you give us a, sort of an idea from you as a child when it was happening, what your perception of it was, mm-hmm. and and that kind of thing, and how your understanding sort of shifted? Yes. So when it first began, I had no understanding that it was inappropriate behavior. Um, when you're five, six, seven years old, you are still learning what is appropriate and what is not. And the person, the people that you look to, to learn that behavior is mainly your parents. And so because it was my father that was my abuser uh, for a, a long time as a child, it didn't, you know, I wasn't able to firmly say like, this is incorrect behavior. 
And there is obviously a lot of affection that you get from your parents. So that is a very blurry line for, for a kid to say like, oh, I can give hugs and kisses to my, my, my mom and dad, but this is going too far and this is inappropriate. Um, but as I did get older, maybe around the age of 8, 9, 10, it did start to very clearly in my mind, I started to realize that this is not good behavior and this is completely inappropriate. But by that time, uh, the abuse had been going on for such a long time. But you were that, a toddler, really? Well, really, yeah. I mean, I mean, a bit older than that. But, um, but by that time, it had been going on for such a long time that I felt a lot of shame in, okay, this is wrong. And I've kind of had this feeling inside that it's wrong. But now I know that it's wrong. But it's been going so on for so long, and I've I've allowed it to happen. So I took on a lot of responsibility for what had been done to me, and I started feeling um, guilty and shame that I had allowed it to happen. And did you ever talk to anyone? Um, not not about the sexual abuse. Um, as the years progressed, my father became to uh, became a lot more um, controlling, and there was. Uh, physical abuse outside of you know sexual abuse and there was emotional abuse and stuff and so as that started to progress I did talk to my siblings and my mom about that but they were all experiencing the that same abuse and so we were all kind of in the same boat of you know it, it you know what are we going to do and it, it didn't it wasn't like one day he was a great dad and the next day he all of a sudden was this you know awful abuser it was a slow progression so and I feel like a lot of people that deal with abuse, whether it's sexual violence or other types of abuse, it does start slow. And so it's easy to say, okay, well, that person had a bad day. They're just angry or, okay, and things just slowly get out of hand. So by the time we were all realizing this is a major problem, we were all so caught up in the, in the system of manipulation and abuse that we didn't know what to do. So when he was arrested, was that the first time that you spoke to, because your sisters were also being abused and had yes. been being abused for, for, for several years, mm-hmm. the same way you had. Mm-hmm. Did, is that the first time you spoke to each other about it? Um, that was the first time we spoke openly and like actually used the term sexual abuse and like talked in detail uh, about that. Uh, in the years before that, there were definitely times where I would have conversations with my sisters and it was kind of this unsaid like, there's something going on, but we would never, I personally never, ever used the words sexual abuse or said any specifics of what happened to me. It was more of like, yeah, dad's getting out of hand, you know, kind of things. And like, yeah, you know, it was it was conversations like that. And uh, it was just appalling once we did talk in detail to, to learn what, not only to, to fully realize what happened to myself, but to realize what happened to my sisters was just... Tell me a bit about that. I mean, was is it literally sitting around a table and, and someone saying, well, he did that to me too and he yeah, did, th- did he do this to you? And it's exactly an it excruciating, was, yeah. uh, dramatic yeah. time. Yeah, it was. And that was something that we, we kind of talked through first with the, the police and the authorities and uh, the TBI, which is like our investigative force for the, for the state of Tennessee. And so first we, we talked through things with them um, so that they would be able to convict our father. But then um, but then even after that, it was months of just kind of processing things and memories would start coming up again. And there was a lot of stuff that was kind of pushed to the back of our minds. And as we started those conversations, it would be like, I know this happened to me. You know, I think I was seven or eight. And then like one of my sisters would say something and I'd be like, oh, my gosh, that happened to me, too. I forgot about that. But that happened at this place at this time. And it was just a, a horrific experience of kind of bringing all that back up and reliving it. 
And you mentioned talking to the authorities. So I'm just trying to get the timeline. Mm. Were you talking to them before he was arrested? Is that how he was convicted? Because, or was it to do with the, the so, other cases? So he he was arrested, and then it wasn't until after his arrest that I began to really speak to the authorities openly about stuff. And um, there was, um, we we feel actually very thankful that there were people that were on the outside, friends and and family that were became aware. Of, or at least a suspicious of what was going on, and they went to the authorities first. And um, a lot of times, when you are in a system of abuse, the the per, the victim does not feel that they can talk to anyone, especially authorities or something. So um, we really feel grateful that the the authorities were tipped off and they came to us. And so we felt in a safe environment to know that, you know. Um, if we talk to you, we're not going to have to go home to our father being super angry that we talk to someone. You guys are already going to take care of it so we can be open with you. And well, he was still in your house when you were talking to them? Like, he, no. no. No, we were actually on tour at the time. Okay. And so um, he was he was separated from us immediately. Well, that feeling of him being arrested, um, was it relief? Was there a sense in you, of all of you, or, or what kind of a feeling was it about that? Yes, it was it would definitely mixed emotions, but I would say, personally for me, the overwhelming sense was one of relief that this has been going on way too long, and now there are professionals, people who are trained to know how to handle situations like this. They are handling it, and they're going to handle it in the correct way. What about your mom? So my mom is, um, she, first of all, I just want to say, I, I think she's an amazing woman and I love her dear, dearly. And a lot of people ask about here, where was your mom in this situation? Um, and unfortunately, she was also a victim of abuse um, on many levels from my father and um, was threatened by him many times. You know, my dad would definitely, you know, I, I don't want to go into too many details of, of her personal story, but my father definitely used um abuse and manipulation to keep my mom uh, terrified and under control, uh, under his control. And had she, was she aware that you were being abused? Um, not sexually um, and not, I mean, I think I, especially as, as it came close to the time where he was arrested, I think she was beginning to, you know, because she was, she was experiencing abuse on many levels herself and so she's saying, you know, there were certain forms of, you know, emotional abuse that she saw him you know, uh, doing to all of us. And so she knew uh, as, it, as it got closer, like, there's got to be something else going on. And was she was just crying out for help to anyone that would listen um, to to try to, you know, fix this. So. And, I mean, I suppose as a parent, usually the thing is that you're trying to protect your children. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the ideal of what happens. Is there a sense in her, and I know you don't want to tell her story too much, but from speaking to her... I imagine the guilt of the fact that she hadn't protected you and that this had been going on in front of her eyes almost Mm -hmm. and she hadn't seen it must be terrible. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel that not just with my mother, but to all of us, uh, all of my siblings and myself included, we all feel a sense of responsibility. I mean, I knew details of what sexual abuse my father was doing what he had done to me and by by you know there's been so many moments where I was like why couldn't I have spoken up sooner I could have protected my siblings from the abuse that I went through if only I had found the courage to speak up before you know before I did and so I feel like we all in a lot of ways carry a bit of that um just uh wishing that we, we had been able to protect each other. Tell me a bit about your father, because you grew up in a very Christian background, non-denominational, mm-hmm. but that was a big part of it. There was the homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Like, do you, looking back at it now, it's hard to have perspective, but you're you're 23 now? I'm 23, yeah. Um, 
when you look at him now, do you does it feel to you? What, how would you describe him and describe what he was doing? Do you call him a paedophile? Do you do you think he he wanted a huge family so that he could have control, that he could you know control everything about you, that create this musical act and do what he wanted? What's your perception of him? Yeah, um, I mean, first I, I want to start off by saying there's no way I can know what what his thought process was on all of this, but from my perspective. Um, uh, it uh, wasn't as cut and dry as I feel like a lot of people tend to see from the outside. Um, it's very easy to say, ah, religious, ah, homeschooling, ah, very, very controlling. And the truth is, I, I feel like that wasn't, it wasn't like he had this master plan from the beginning. It was like, I'm going to have all these kids and I'm going to do all this. Um, I think it was something that kind of developed. Like, I, one thing I know that from the very beginning, he did say he wanted to have a big family, but my mom was, very excited about having a large family too. And as far as like the homeschooling, my mom was, uh, was studied education in college and she knew that my mom knew that she wanted to homeschool us kids. And just because she felt that she could really tailor educations to each of us and, and get us the best education that we possibly could. So that decision wasn't necessarily one that my father was like set on. And, and I can see from, you know, from the outside, how that could be like, ah, that was a major plan. But it really wasn't. And even um, living out in the countryside and stuff like that, my mom, again, was kind of the one. She grew up uh, going to a horse farm in, in Tennessee for vacations and for summer camp. And so she'd always loved to, you know, have a horse farm and stuff. And my dad grew up in the city. He was kind of a city slicker from Chicago. And so he wanted to be close to, to Nashville, to a city. And my mom wanted to have a horse farm. So they kind of found this this nice middle ground. So, um, I again, I don't think that it was this big master plan from the beginning. I think it was something that he, honestly, I think he kind of fell into and then just made wrong decision after wrong decision after wrong decision. And it led him to a place that was just evil. But he is a pedophile. Like, you know, yeah. that's what I mean, he was yes, doing. He yeah, had a yeah. sexual interest in his children. And, right. yes. And uh, so is it is it impossible to, I mean, I, I have a very small experience of this, but when you are so, you have a parent, someone who on paper and everything you love, mm-hmm. and they're doing something so evil and so horrific, that those that brings up so many complicated mm-hmm. feelings. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to yeah. put it mildly. It's not cut and dry. It's not easy like no. this and that. It is Whereas, you know, you, and when you see people standing up in court sort of supporting people mm-hmm. in their family who have done terrible mm-hmm. things, you know, which you see sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, and it's very hard for people on the outside to understand that. Right. Yeah. How are you feeling and how have you felt about your father mm-hmm. ever since? Have you mm-hmm. spoken to him? Have you any interest in speaking mm-hmm. to him? Or what are you, where are you now with that? Yeah, so I have not spoken to him since his arrest, and there's actually um, because uh, of the the you know the nature of the crimes that he committed against me, I'm actually not allowed to. Well, he is not allowed to have any interaction with me um, for the rest of my life, uh, or the rest of his life. Um, uh, if if at any point I would want that to be removed, I would have to go before a judge and specifically ask for that to be removed. Um, and I don't feel that at, at this time, at least, that uh, that is something that I would I would want to do. And I don't want to speak for, you know, myself in the future, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now. But at this point, that is not something that I am, you know, considering. Um, and as you were saying before about it just being a complex, uh, you know, just emotional uh, thing to work through. Um, yeah, it is. It is very complex. And you as, you know, as, you know, father to daughter, there's always going to be a connection there, no matter what what happens. Um, and that is, I believe, um, that's what makes it, you know, so complex there. But as far as there, there's no doubt in my mind what he did was absolutely wrong. It was disgusting and evil. And there is 
no room for allowance of that in my mind, whatever, uh, you know, whatsoever. But, um, but as far as I think a lot of people expect me to have this sort of raging hatred for my dad, which I don't. And that is what I believe is so surprising to people. And um, there have definitely been moments of that for me. But as far as living in that state constantly, I've realized that that is hurting me more than it's hurting him. And um, and just for my own health, my mo- own mental health, I have to move beyond this. And um, I think a big part for me was kind of realizing that I don't have to live as a victim for the rest of my life. I can become a survivor of abuse and and live a beautiful life full of joy and love after going through something so horrific. And obviously that now that he is removed from my life, I am able to do that. Um, and so I think that uh, that was something that I didn't come to right away, but um, through talking with counselors and just kind of realizing my own my own internal process and how how that is affecting my my mental state, it was something that I figured I needed to do for myself. And your other sisters who are abused by him are they on a similar path? I know you can't speak mm-hmm. for them necessarily, yeah. but are they also, or is there some? members who are feeling haven't come to that point quite as easily yeah um i i definitely think there uh, there's obviously such a variety in there's 12 of us kids all different personalities different experiences even with the within the abuse different experiences of that and, and different places in their life now and so we are not absolutely we are not all at the same point in our journey of kind of understanding this and healing from it but i do feel that everyone is on a path that is possibly leading towards that, being able to let go of anger and um, bitterness. And I, um, you know, as I said, we're all on, on different parts of that journey. Were your brothers abused by him? Not sexually, um, but there is definitely physical violence and emotional abuse that we all experienced. So you share that with them in terms of there's nobody who really escaped. Yeah, no, no, unfortunately not. Um, I mean, it's really interesting to hear you talk about, I suppose, which what is kind of I mean, I'm not. You haven't used the word forgiveness, but there's a, a, a sense that you holding on to, which would be perfectly understandable, rage, hatred, you know, resentment, and all anger, would be understandable. But if how is that going to help you kind of live? Right. You're you're only 23. Mm-hmm. You know, you've a, you've a long, long life ahead of you, and you seem to have come to that very early. I mean, it takes people quite a long time. Why do you think that you've come to that so quickly? Because it's only. 2016 when when he was arrested mm-hmm. so you've only had a couple of years to right. process this mm-hmm. i mean it's it's quite yeah. new in terms of your evolution in terms mm-hmm. of understanding yeah um it, even though it is 2 years since our father was arrested for me personally the sexual abuse ended many years before that right. so i've i really feel that i started to process that at least that aspect of the abuse uh long before my father was ever arrested and taken out of the picture and um, that was something that even on a daily basis, you know, when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, that I had to realize, like, this is affecting me. How am I going to deal with this? And, on your um, own, Jennifer, this is what's really, you, you were dealing with that on your own. Mm-hmm. You were totally in your own mind mm-hmm. and your own, I mean, how how did you process that at 13, 14, 15? Well, I think a lot of that was just compartmentalizing and kind of pushing it back, you know, to the back corner of my brain and saying, like, I have to focus on the good in this situation, otherwise I'm going to go insane. So I think that was how it started for me. And I think even though I don't believe that compartmentalizing and kind of pushing those down is a healthy thing, it gave me the opportunity to realize that if I can be joyful and, like, happy, 
uh, that is so much healthier for me than being angry and bitter all the time. So at least it gave me kind of a look at, okay, when I let this rule my mind, it's, you know, I react one way. And when I let this rule my mind, I react a certain way. So by the time 2016 came around and I was able to talk openly with the authorities and talk with counselors and talk openly with my family, I kind of already had this understanding of, okay, regardless of how this affects my father, I know how this affects me. So I know what direction I need to go in. And obviously there was a huge unpacking and going through all those things that I pushed down with the authorities, with counselors, with you know close family friends and things like that. And so I, I really felt that even as I was going through all of that, I knew I wanted to deal with it and move past it as quickly as possible. Because at the beginning, we were talking about the joy from the music and mm-hmm. going out. and doing, So aligned with what was clearly a horrible situation, a family situation, very dysfunctional, yeah. very abusive in very many different ways, there was the joy of music. And yeah. do, you, do you very much see that as a kind of amidst all this horribleness, yeah. there was this also beautiful thing that was going on that was that all of you could celebrate together yes but it's kind of a real contrast isn't it yeah absolutely and I think we see that in not only other stories of abuse but any kind of oppressive um you know situation you you find people getting together and kind of you know bonding through that and finding ways to have joy and have fun you know good memories even within a very trying time and so I really felt that I was able to do that with my siblings and with my mom now you're in America um you're from there and you live there and your president Trump is somebody who has been very abusive towards women and has many times we, we hear about things that he says the way he treats women I'm just interested from that perspective what you feel about him and what you think about America at the moment. Yeah. Um, As far as just America in general, as far as our society when it comes to, um, you know, abuse and sexuality and all of that stuff, I do feel that it is like it is a very – it's an issue that we are dealing with very heavily. And just the numbers of people that are abused within the U.S. are just astounding. It's just just awful. But I feel like it's a topic that we are starting to discuss more. And obviously you have people that are have all very different experiences. So they're all coming to the table with very strong opinions. And I think that it's important for people to really kind of look at things from all perspectives and to not just say, okay, well, this was my experience. Therefore, this is how we need to handle things going forward because the person next to you, a fellow victim, might have a very different experience and you might have to say, okay, let's take all things to account and what are we going to do as a society to start fixing this problem? And I did mention Trump, so what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> of you? I don't know um, if you're skillfully avoiding yeah. it. <laughs> well, maybe I was. You know? <laughs> um, well, you can't anymore, just right. tell me. Well, um, you know, obviously I, I think that you know, whether it's Trump or anyone, like people do need to take responsibility for their actions and things that they say. And um, I think that whether it is something that was, um, you know, in the past or present um, actions, um, you know, each person is going to have to, as I said, take responsibility for that. And um, I don't think that, um, I don't, I, I don't, I think it's, we're very quick to label people as certain things because of the view that that we have. And, and I want to make sure that I don't start um, labeling people through my experience. I want to make sure that I do see, you know, 
that I see. And, and even if someone has like you know made mistakes or or made very bad decisions, I don't want to excuse that. But I also don't want to make everyone my father in my eyes. You know. That's very wise. You are very wise for someone twenty three. I have to say. <laughs> I mean, sometimes when you've been, you're obviously a very intelligent woman, but when you've been through a lot like that and you've had uh, some counselling, clearly, and you, I hope that continues because that's yeah. something. Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> we all need a bit of that anyway. Um, I'd like to talk to you about faith and mm-hmm. and Christianity and religion because the the thing that often, and you'll know that in this country, we've had a. And a continuing story of, you know, the hypocrisy of people who are telling you about God and telling you about sin and the right thing to do. And meanwhile, you know, so many of our priests, and you will have seen that in America too, Mm -hmm. abusing young children and uh, abusing their trust and sexually Mm -hmm. abusing them and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's that, it's that contrast. I mean, I presume, I'm imagining, don't assume, but you can let me know that you grew up in a house where you were told a very strict moral code. You were Mm -hmm. told what was right, what was wrong. And at the same time, while that was happening, clearly the most wrong things were going on at the same time. How do you reconcile all of that? So uh, I think that's a really good question and that's something that a lot of people are curious about. How did this affect my faith and what do I think about faith in general after this? And um, not, I'm not going to, you know, pretend that my faith was not challenged in this. But I think for me, it was really key to understand that this is not just something that happens within the church. This is something that happens, you know, specifically sexual abuse or just, you know, people having, you know, moral, morally making bad decisions is not something that just happens within church or religion or the faith. It is, it is just a, a worldwide problem. It's a, it's a human problem. And so I had to make a choice that I wasn't going to discredit my faith because someone that claimed to be, you know, in that same faith was acting in such a, you know, horrible way. Because the truth is, you know, whether it's, you know, the arts or education or anything else, there are people that are saying one thing and doing another. So if you're going to discredit faith on that basis, then you're going to have to discredit so many other things. And clearly that is not the the, the right the decision to make there. So um, my faith is my own. Uh, I'm not practicing, you know, my father's faith, so to speak. Um, it is something that, you know, a relationship with God that that I hold on my own. And so in a lot of the ways, my father is not even a part of my faith anymore. And um, how is your mother? She's doing well. Um, and thank you for asking a lot of people. I, I tend to run to the conclusion that um, uh, kind of demonize my mom in the situation. And they, they uh, and I can understand from from someone who doesn't know a lot of details in the story, how they can quickly come to that conclusion. But um, I love my mother dearly, and I know what she's been through, the abuse that she has gone through, and she is a fellow victim in this. And she is starting her healing process and getting counseling, and that is such an amazing thing for me to see. And we have only grown closer over the last two years as we've started to process through this together as, you know, just mother and daughter, but then as a family as well. Because you have some very young siblings too, mm-hmm. like the youngest is eight. Yes, that's correct. And they're all, so what, what stage is everyone at? I mean, how many children live with your mom now? Or? Um, so yeah, the, the younger the younger half of the kids so still six. live with my mother, yeah. Um, and as, as older ones are, some of us are already moved out and some are in the process of moving out currently. And um, so she definitely still has, I mean, she has six kids at home that she's still, um, you know, raising on her own. And that is such a difficult thing to do. Um, uh, and she's she's been a real champ about it. Like, honestly, she has just chosen to roll up her sleeves and say, I'm going to still provide the best 
um, life that I can for my, for my kids. And um, I know you don't know whether the extent or whether those other younger children were mm-hmm. abused by your father too. And that's something that, you know, again, it's their stories and you, right, they will, yeah. that will probably emerge mm-hmm. uh, as the years ahead as they grow older yeah. and maybe feel able to talk or yeah. that kind of thing. But I mean, hopefully they're getting support and help mm-hmm. too. Are, yeah. Because I mean, whatever about, whatever they understand of what mm-hmm. happened, their father was there and then he wasn't. Oh, he's gone. Yeah. So it's, it's more than just dealing with, uh, any, you know, bad situation that, you know, when my father was part of the house, but now that my father was so quickly, you know, just and dramatically removed from the situation, like that's its own thing that a kid has to process. So there are absolutely, um, there are, you know, there are counselors, there are people around that are really trying to help them sort through this and at the, at a pace that they, as children are comfortable, you know, with, with doing that. There's issues, and there's cases recently even here where um, somebody uh, has been abusive and the wife or the partner has stood by that person mm-hmm. and has refused to believe the, mm-hmm. the testimonies of, of victims right, like yourself, yeah. which, you know, is another form of abuse then because mm-hmm. you're not only abused but then you're rejected by the person who's supposed to, when right. they find out, protect. Mm-hmm. That obviously hasn't happened in this case. Right. Your mother, I presume, is on the Truly, same page yes. and rejecting him right. completely. Yes. Is that, is that the that case? That is absolutely the case and she is so supportive to all of us and we are supportive to her and in the the abuse that she you know experienced as well. So we are yeah. That's that's definitely we never experienced that uh, that case of you know telling someone and then not being believed. So we're very fortunate in in that case. So tell me about now. Um, the music is still a big part of your lives. Is that yes. right? Yeah. So uh, uh, after our father was arrested, we did take uh, close to two years. Um, well, you need a bit of time off, really. right? Exactly, just away from the music. And during that time, we we never stopped playing music as individuals, but as as far as a band goes, we definitely stepped away from that. And um, uh, six of us came back together uh, several months ago and decided that we wanted to do a, do another music project. And so we released a, a new album, and this album is extremely open and honest and every song on it deals in some way with with our story um uh just not just the not just the uh, the hard abusive times but um also on our journey of healing and you know kind of that light at the end of the tunnel knowing that you know again I don't have to be divine by this um I can uh, we have one song on the album that's called I choose life and it's like being empowered and saying you know I'm going to choose how you know, I can choose if I'm going to be happy. I can choose if I'm going to live a beautiful life after this. And I think that's a really important message for people to hear um, that um, you really can take control of your life even after you've lived in a in a in a you know situation where you had absolutely no control over that. Have you read a book called The Choice by Edith Eager? I have not. Jennifer, you really need to read it because it's actually as if you've read it and are, it's, it's all about that philosophy. It's a woman yeah. who, um, she's from Hungary and she went to Auschwitz when she was 16 mm-hmm. and she ended up going to America, becoming a, a, a psychologist. But mm-hmm. her book, The Choice, is sort of about her story, but it's also exactly about that, yeah. about how even when the worst things mm-hmm. happen to you, you don't have to be defined from them. Mm-hmm. You can move on from them. You right. can be in charge of the direction mm-hmm. of your life, which is obviously exactly yeah. what you guys are are in the process of doing. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I feel that that is such an important thing because ultimately if you continue to live in that state of fear and anger and just not being able to move, uh, you know, to kind of have a, a larger perspective than whoever your abuser was, they ultimately win. And to be able to say, to move past that and to say, it does not affect me anymore, then that is, that is like the ultimate victory on your own part. 
you're here in Ireland for the Festival of Politics. Yes. This is very different to music festivals, <laughs> which I'm sure you've been to many. Yeah. So tell me about that and tell me about your taking part in the festival. Yeah, so um, the Festival of Politics is going to be happening this whole weekend in the Temple Bar area. And um, I've I'm so thankful to be a part of this and to be able to not only share my story and, you know, talk about the, you know, sexual abuse because it is such a prevalent issue worldwide, not just in the U.S. or in Ireland, um, but to also share a little bit about my music and uh, how that has helped me and my siblings in the healing process because that really was such such a huge thing. And I think music in general can be a very healing thing for people. So, so what's next for you all uh, now in, in the process of going forward in your life? Yeah, so we are currently on tour. Uh, took a little, a little uh, weekend off to come over here to Ireland, but I'm going to be flying to San Francisco after this to be playing a show, meet up with the band there and playing a show. And then the end of this month concludes our 2018 tour. We're going to have a month off for family time and celebrating the Will holidays. you go back to your mom's house? and back to, Is she still in Nashville? Or? She is in the Nashville area, yeah. So um, I think we're going to do Thanksgiving with my mom and then we're going to do Christmas with my with my husband's family. So, so you just got married recently. I did, yeah, about yeah. six months ago. Great. I mean, I suppose people might be interested too in how what happened to you affected your ability to have relationships, positive, healthy ones. Mm -hmm. And is that something you've reflected on a lot? Yeah. um, A big thing that a lot of people ask is like, how do you trust men at this point? And thankfully, that was really never something that I dealt with. I, I think definitely some other members of my family have dealt with that. But for me, I really saw this as a, as an isolated, um, you know, incident, and it wasn't, again, kind of what I was saying about I don't want to view other people through the lens of who my father was. And I, that, you know, just not being able to trust men in general was not really something that I personally struggled with. So I'm really, I'm really thankful for that. And um, my husband and I, we didn't, we began our relationship after my father was arrested. And so. It's very sudden, Jennifer. I'm going to get a little matron in there and say, <laughs> so you don't know him very long, really. Well, I, I knew him before that, right. but as far as our relationship yeah. really starting and Why being Why did you serious, want to get married so young? Because it is very young these days to get married, isn't mm-hmm. it? Well, I think it wasn't really an age thing for me. It wasn't like I wanted to get married young. It was just I felt that I was at a point in my relationship with my now husband that I felt that I was ready to do life with him. And it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a general like, I want to get married young Mm -hmm. and I want to do this. It was very specific to him and to me and to our relationship. And I just, we both felt that we were, we were ready to make that commitment to each other. Okay, well, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you, and yeah, we will so have a good listen to the album. Yeah. Um, and the best of luck with everything. I Thanks. Think. I just want to say the, the details of, of the, I will be speaking at the Festival of Politics tonight, yes. so they'll absolutely kill me if I don't tell the details of the time and where it is. So it's going to be tonight at 8 p.m. at Taylor's Hall, so the Festival Very of Politics. Good. So Excellent. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. No problem, <laughs> and hopefully you might come back to Ireland again, maybe on tour or some kind of yeah, uh, musical would, capacity. That I would, would love great. that. And thank you so much for having me on and for, for talking about this, I feel that the topic of sexual abuse cannot be talked about enough because it is such an important thing. Well, I want to say thank you to you for talking about it because it's not easy. Um, you're obviously used to it and you have, you know, come to terms with telling the story, but mm-hmm. it's always something that it's such um, it's such a deep and mm-hmm. dark part of something of your life that you know I I would never take it for granted when someone comes on and talk about that stuff so thank you very much because I think I agree with you the more we talk about it the more we don't hide it away in corners and make it look like it's somehow you know a shameful thing for for the victims the better we can understand and we can 
we can move on and hopefully, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I just feel so depressed that it's so widespread. Yeah. What do we do? Mm-hmm. But I do think more people coming out and saying, no, that was me. That happened to me. And here's mm-hmm. the story. And, and owning their story too, which yeah. is really important. Yeah. And whether it's on a public scale or just within your own family exactly. and friends, I do think that is very important to tell your story. Because I think for so long, people just, I mean, you experienced it yourself as a young child, the mm-hmm. shame, right. the feeling like, well, I let it happen, all yeah. that kind of stuff. And that's sort of works so much in the uh, perpetrator's favor, doesn't it? Right, exactly. Yeah, they they count on the silence of their victim. And um, yeah, I, I definitely think that, that telling your story is, is a good thing. And also the more, like I know for me, it was easier to for me to tell my story after I had heard my sister tell her story. And then, you know, other people that I respect and greatly admire when they come forward and they say, yeah, I was a victim of sexual abuse. And I can say, wow, that does not affect how I see that person then gives me the courage to tell my story and I don't feel that now I'm going to be this shameful person that no one's going to want to interact with. So I think for other victims, it's important for them to hear the stories of, you know, of their friends and family that have also... And we're living through these amazing times where especially women are standing up Mm -hmm. and saying, no, I'm not being silent, I'm going to talk. And I think that's so great. Yeah, and I I, I definitely agree, but I also want to just mention that there are men, you know, and boys that are being sexually abused too. And so I think it's really important to hear everyone's story. And in some ways, for men and boys, it's, it's hard for them mm-hmm. because uh, for a whole, other, whole, 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 whole so of other reasons so and I agree with you it's, it's all about anybody who's been abused it's not just mm-hmm. a, a gender issue but yeah. thank you very much thank Jennifer you so Willis. much for having me I really appreciate it that was Jennifer Willis speaking to me there now the Dublin Feminist Film Festival promotes and celebrates female filmmakers hoping to inspire and empower others to get involved in filmmaking. This involves considering women on screen, but also behind the camera through celebrating and showcasing fantastic female filmmaking, as well as demonstrating that women make compelling and complex characters and subjects. This is the fifth year of the festival and it takes place in the Lighthouse Cinema next week on the 21st and 22nd of November. Ahead of that, Jennifer Ryan spoke to some of the women involved, Festival Manager Aoife O'Toole, Programme Manager Jennifer O'Mara and Film Director Mia Malarkey. First of all, Aoife, can I ask you, I know it's we, we're one week out now, so everything, all your ducks are in a row. This festival is in its fifth year now. So what I want to know, first of all, is where the kind of the idea for it came from. Sure. Well, back in 2014, Carla Helian, who is the founder of the festival, had travelled to Nepal and she had worked with um, a women's charity there called Sasana, who um, help people um, who've been through human trafficking trauma. And so Carla works in the film industry. She works in production. When she came back to Ireland, she felt very strongly about this particular charity and she wanted to raise money for them and help out. And the fact that she did work in the film industry as well, that inspired her then to promote women in film. So she um, founded the Feminist Film Festival. And so um, since then, it's been run every year. And this year, we're delighted um, we had the opportunity and funds to move to the Lighthouse Cinema in Smithfield. Before the festival was started, was there also, you mentioned that Carla uh, had a trip to Nepal, but there's also the fact that I suppose you might look around, you would see perhaps a lack of representation of uh, women filmmakers or uh, films being made about women and women's issues. Mm-hmm. Was it in part a response to that? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the the stats throughout the years, I mean, there's stats from 2017 um, were from the US, from women in Hollywood. Um, only 4% of films made had a female cin- cinematographer. 
So, um, and there's there's a lot more scarier stats than that when you look at, at women behind the screen and on screen and women's um, on screen time. Okay, so Jennifer, maybe you might be able to tell us a little bit about that. Uh, you're the programme director. Yeah, so over the last five years, we've tried to have different themes, different focuses for each programme. We had one on women's voices a few years ago. Last year, the, the topic was future feminisms. Uh, and this year we decided that because cinematography is an area in Ireland and more broadly where women are really underrepresented, um, that we'd make that the focus. So as Eva said, all our features, all our shorts have women both directing and or shooting it. So in some cases, the same woman. Um, so the idea that um, one of the things that inspired us was this year, um, Rachel Morrison, um, the US cinematographer, was the first woman to be nominated for an Academy Award for cinematography. So even though that's kind of removed from the Irish context, it's sort of representative of how that particular aspect of the of the industry is particularly hard for women to break into, even more so than directing, screenwriting, editing. For whatever reason, the, the associations and the kind of um, lack of opportunity seems to be particularly strong in that area. So we kind of wanted to foreground um, the women who have been working in those areas. We've got uh, a programme that includes um, features from the US, from Australia, from Indonesia, um, and also from Argentina, Argentina, the last one. Um, Yeah, so that idea of kind of looking to the history of women in cinematography and that the idea that it's harder to get into, but there are definitely um, women who have been um, kind of making great strides in that area. And so we wanted to kind of highlight their work. And you say it's more difficult for women to get into and obviously you can't come up with like all of the reasons why. You can only speculate, really. But do you have your own theories on why that is? Is it something that about holding a camera or editing film or something like that is seen as a more masculine thing to do than it is to be an actor or whatever? Yeah, one of the interesting things is how editing has traditionally been quite associated with women. There are quite a few um, and people often tied it to kind of sewing and the idea of similarities between the two, especially when it used to be on film strip oh, yeah, before yeah, yeah. you moved to digital video. Um, but with cinematography, yeah, some of the biases would come down to like the body um, and people would, you know, refer to the, it, the that women's breasts would get in the way of the camera um, and really over things like that. So one of the, the most interesting um, posts I've seen, um, Rachel Morrison um, Cher is one of her eight months pregnant and still working and showing, you know, her her baby bump and her camera together. And I think it was a really powerful image in terms of her saying, look, there's no reason if you want why you can't do this. They're not mutually um, exclusive at all. Yeah, I see you, Mia, nodding over there a lot of things that Jennifer is saying. You're a director and you're a founder of Ishka Films. Can you tell me a little bit about what Ishka Films do, first of all? Yeah, so um, Ishka Films is a production company based between Dublin and Galway and we predominantly do short documentaries. And I was just vigorously nodding along there. <laughs> yeah. I guess because I've heard the stories of like boobs get in the way of holding a camera and if you don't have big muscular shoulders, you're not going to be able to hold a rig. And I mean, yeah, it's pretty ludicrous because really what it comes down to is the eye and the imagination when it's cinematography. And everybody has that or, you know, some people have it more than others, but it's definitely not gender based. Um, And it's nice with technology. It's kind of getting smaller and smaller and more versatile and more dynamic in how you can operate it. Um, So that creates a more even playing field for female cinematographers, because I would do a lot of camera work myself, either for my own projects or occasionally for other people. 
And um, I haven't faced biases personally, but I'm very aware of them. And funny enough, I tend to hire male cinematographers because that's what's out there. Like, that's what I'm finding and that's who's available. So I would love more female cinematographers for the female gaze, for like just to have a female perception on the image and kind of how that would come back into the whole film then would be very interesting. Um, So, yeah. How do you you think that can be changed? It's a cultural shift, obviously. So where does that start? Well, actually, I'm teaching a course at the moment. There we go now. There we go. Back to the roots. (laughs) I am teaching a course called Screen 8. Uh, It's a group of teens aged between 14 to 16. Um, It's about, it's 60, 40% in terms of female to male, which is nice. There's slightly more girls. And I'm covering each department of filmmaking. So I'm really encouraging the girls to be hands-on with technology and the guys to be really thoughtful about um, what does this mean in terms of emotion. So I'm like, I'm trying to make sure everybody's engaged at every level so that they don't just default. Um, And I'm bringing in lots of guest speakers, like so a sound guy, a camera person, a director, editor, and again, I'm trying to get a gender balance. So I have like a female director, male cinematographer, <laughs> which I might actually, yeah, see if I can find a female cinematographer to come in as well now that we're talking about it. We'll find a few for you. <laughs> but I, so I'm, I'm sort of consciously and unconsciously addressing it with these teens that I'm teaching. And it's great because once you open the door to them, they're actually really enthusiastic in all the different areas. So you just have to... Now, like we had a sound guy in, he had a huge boom pole that was maybe, let's say, four metres long and none of the girls wanted to hold it. And I was like, oh, come on. So I started getting like making them get up. And then as soon as the first girl got up, they're like, oh, this is fun. This is easy. And they thought you had to be very strong to hold it. But actually, it's just how you balance it. So it's almost like a yoga thing, you know. Mm. Um, so once you have it sitting right, you, you don't get tired. That's the whole idea of the boom pole. You have to make sure you hold it right. And then the girls started standing up and having a go. And then it was like anybody could have a go. So it's kind of, I guess it's probably at the beginning, yeah. like in the teen years or like if you go to film school and you're whatever, 19, 20, to not be afraid to try the thing. Like, and same, I suppose, with guys, to not be afraid to think in a more female way mm-hmm. and in a more emotional way. Like it probably goes both ways. Yeah, but, definitely. But yeah. because it comes down as well to what you were saying about maybe trying to find a female cinematographer to bring in and show them as well, that, that you know, women are cinematographers too because it comes down uh, Aoife doesn't it to like any other industry any kind of job unless you see somebody who looks like you doing that then it just doesn't even occur to you that you could possibly do it yeah exactly so um, interestingly we had um, we ran a workshop for um, teenage girls uh, at last year's festival it was make a movie on your phone Um, so we had we had a little group of they were aged 12 to 13 that we, we got in. And it was just so lovely to see these these young girls. And I, I interviewed each of them and asked them what did the word feminism mean to them. And, you know, just they're, they're so young and I just my heart was melting. But um, what kind of things did they come out with? Just equality, basically. Mm. That's 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 basically what they said, and then they got a bit shy. I wanted to ask you: in the five years since the first festival, has there been many changes in the industry, positively with regards to women and feminism? And I know it, it's sometimes I feel like it might be a little bit uh, overstated the influence of Me Too beyond what's happened in the US. So, yeah. do you think there's been any sort of trickle down over here? One thing that is 
promising, I think, even in the five years since we've been running, um, is that even within Ireland, in terms of the Irish Film Board and Screen Ireland, that there have been developments and that they've brought in kind of um, programmes and um, sort of more of a quota system designed to kind of uh, readdress some of the imbalances in a a national context. Um, And even on our programme this year, um, of the 10 shorts that we're showing um, next Wednesday, that five of them are made by Irish filmmakers. So that idea that even within our, in our own um, experiences over the last five years, we've seen um, a range of Irish filmmakers emerging often. Um, and so it's, it, I think there is a lot of potential and promise um, and that I think it's like continuing what Mia is saying about like um, think, rethinking maybe how films how filmmaking is being taught um, and that movements like Me Too um, can be really useful in drawing attention to the cause um, and that they can open up discussions um, that are useful for us too. And what Screen Ireland are doing is great in terms of uh, really encouraging women directors, writers, cinematographers. They've got uh, schemes specifically just for women um, and then the 50-50 quota, which actually initially I was opposed to because I, I thought it was against meritocracy. But if it's just implemented for like a number of years as a, a way of encouraging women to rise up, then you pull it out again. And really it's just that it, there's not enough women applying for the funding to begin with. And then within that, the stats are still loaded against the women. So by having the 50-50 quota, it pulls women right into the mix and then you can... And it's worked really effectively in Sweden, for example, which is where we borrowed the model from. So the, I don't know what the Swedish Film Board is called. Maybe it's the Swedish Film Board. But they've been using this quota system for a while and it's completely balanced the stats. There's loads of really talented women, directors, writers, producers, all kind of rising up. And they're doing really well on the festival circuit with Swedish cinema because it's got this new perspective now. There's new voices, there's new, like, it's focusing more on female stories and female kind of ideas of life and so they're actually even at the level of distribution and and festivals they're doing really well so it's actually working really effectively and then they can pull out the quota system once it's kind of reached a nice kind of balance point so I think fair play to Screen Ireland for implementing that here as well interesting Jennifer with regards to uh, the festival in the next few years do you envisage it getting bigger more funding more people on board or do you think that actually the best situation would be for there not to need to be any feminist film festival because actually look around the circuit and all film festivals will actually be inherently feminist. Yeah, that is the dream. I mean, I don't know how realistic that is within the next few years. So hopefully we can continue to screen our films at the Lighthouse, get a bigger audience and to focus on different themes. So even though we have had, um, we know we've covered different aspects, but we've never looked at things like screenwriting or editing or all those other roles or even thinking about like representations on screen, which is obviously another important aspect. So I think hopefully we're like helping to kind of um, draw attention to women in film and so that in... Maybe like what you're saying about the quota system, Mia, that, you know, if you ha- if you have these sort of um, structures in place that eventually you won't need them because you've kind of normalized it much more. But for the next few years, we hope we'll, be able- we'll still have a space in the like Dublin cultural landscape. Uh, yeah. and, and even we're hoping to do um, one off screenings and events throughout the year as well. The festival starts next Tuesday, 20th. Where can people find out about it 
and what do they need to know? Our website is DublinFeministFilmFestival.com um, We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, all events are up for sale on Eventbrite. Tickets are 11 euro, nine for students or seniors. They're up for sale now. I, I know people don't really pre-book cinema these days, but we're, we'll be in the lighthouse set, set hawking tickets uh, on the on the night as well. Aoife, Mia, Jennifer, thanks very much for coming into the women's podcast today. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. And that's it for today. Thanks to Jennifer Willis, Aoife O'Toole, Jennifer O'Mara, Mia Malarkey, and also to the Belfast Arts Festival for sending us the audio from the Repealed event. And thanks to, to Una Mullally. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com along with a whole load of other brilliant podcasts, I should add. If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we enjoy a bit of praise just like anyone else. So if you like what we do, head along to iTunes, give us a review and tell all your friends about it. Today's podcast was produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.